0: Chapter 9. The Great Negotiator It's not all over yet if you're still talking. Cyril Ramaphosa Num's growth was staggering. At the time of its inaugural Congress in December 1982, it had just 14,000 members in nine branches. By the end of 1983, it claimed 53,000 members on 48 mines. In January 1985 there were 120,000 workers on 85 mines and by the middle of 1986 an astonishing 344,000 mine workers had signed up to the union. Of these 228,000 were also paid up bringing substantial internal funding to the union for the first time and the union could boast more than 5,000 shaft stewards. Mine organization had defeated every other union that had attempted it. Yet NUM's growth continued even after 1985, when Anglo-American finally realized with a shock that NUM was not the sweetheart union it made itself out to be. There are a number of explanations for the union's success, the most important of which is also the most obvious. Conditions on the mines were so appalling that workers rushed to sign up once the chance was offered to them. Vic Allen's history of black mine workers unforgettably describes the systematic destruction of mines, lives and families in the pursuit of mine profit. In a terrifying working environment, miners labored with jackhammer drills and pushed heavy ore-moving trucks. Routine use of explosives, the movement of large machines in confined spaces and rock bursts at high pressure all had the potential to tear off limbs and crush bodies. Accidents underground killed and maimed thousands every year, and the historical mortality rates on South African mines were exceeded only by laborers building the Panama Canal. Mine managers treated workers as disposable objects and would medically repatriate men killed or crippled in rock falls or blasts paying them off with a nominal sum before sending them home. Mine workers also endured the psychological scarring of incarceration, almost like prisoners in single-sex hostels. The hostel system exposed workers and their rural families and communities to diseases of urbanization such as tuberculosis, which grew rapidly in the crowded, stressful and fatiguing mine compounds. Migrancy meant that families were often broken. There was virtually no family accommodation on the mines and the hostels were desperate places for workers to live. On one account, they were miserable almost beyond imagining, quartered in long brick-walled structures with corrugated iron roofs. They lived 20 to a room that measures 18 by 25 feet. Each man has a concrete cubicle, a slab floor of which is his bed. The most privacy a man can get is to hang a blanket in front of his bunk. Compound culture was brutal and denied miners social and cultural outlets. Anglo's own 1970s research identified the foci of compound culture as alcohol, dacha, cannabis, town woman, and homosexuality. And Induna's system of discipline used ethnic division and patronage to control workers. Apartheid logic was also applied relentlessly on the mines, with white separated from black, torso workers separated from Sutu, and so on. Racial abuse and arbitrary violence were commonplace, with Anglo research concluding that the major source of tension underground, apart from the dangers of the job itself, is the white miner. The industry remained essentially repressive in character and workers were routinely humiliated, for example, through forced stripping, homosexual abuse on the part of Indunas, and demands for bribes from corrupt personnel officers. Mine workers had always faced the threat of arbitrary dismissal, and a computerized system of blacklisting introduced in the early 1980s meant a dismissed worker might never find mine work again. Grounds for dismissal were capricious, arriving a few minutes late, not seeing eye-to-eye with an induna. And there was no appeal mechanism. In most countries, miners have enjoyed relatively high salaries, partially to compensate for the arduous and dangerous nature of the work. Francis Wilson's influential 1972 study of the conditions of South African mine workers showed that their wages had actually fallen in real terms between 1910 and 1970. Despite increases in the second half of the 1970s, black miners were still paid a pittance. They had few career prospects, moreover, with Category 8, overground work, and absolute racial ceiling. The racial bars on promotion above ground and blasting certificates underground made the upper skill echelon of black workers, frustrated and ripe for organisation. Mine workers were acutely aware that the indignities of apartheid society were being expressed on the mines. Black workers would carry whites' bags, stand in long queues, squeeze into crowded lifts, and be forced to accept the casual violence and racist language of their white overseers. As violence in the wider society dramatically escalated in the middle of the 1980s and the townships entered the period of ungovernability, the repressive mines became a new front line. Unions also became channels through which deeper political aspirations about the end of the apartheid system could flow. In the face of appalling circumstances and impatient collective consciousness among ordinary mine workers, Fueled the NUM's rapid growth. At the same time, NUM's recruitment drive was helped by wider changes in the labour relations environment. In most countries, union membership had reached a plateau or had even gone into decline. But in South Africa, post-Vihon, labour reforms opened the floodgates to union organisation. The growth of trade unions in South Africa from 1970s to 1996 economist Ian Macken observes, was nothing short of phenomenal. Industrial workforces were just 30% unionised in 1977, but by 1990, 70% were signed up. The mining data, 7% unionised in 1977, and more than 55% in 1990, are not out of line with these trends. Across the non-agricultural economy as a whole... There were 800,000 union members in 1980, one and a quarter million in 1983, and more than two million by 1988. For NUM, with its especially difficult organizing environment, cooperation with the biggest mining house, Anglo-American, was decisive. By opening up its mines to organization, Anglo allowed NUM to establish a bridgehead, By 1986, more than 8 in every 10 members were employees on Anglo mines. Around 1 in 10, however, were employees of goldfields, the most conservative of the mining houses. Ramaphosa explains that Anglo-American itself developed a lot of structures allowing workers to air their views and so forth. Their industrial relations policies were actually fairly good. On the other hand, Goldfield's mines were probably the worst in terms of the treatment at work and the residential places, and the pay. As Dunbar Moody reflects, the union found most of its support from workers at either end of the spectrum of treatment, at Anglo-American, where workers were already accustomed to speaking their minds, and at Goldfield's, where conditions were really bad. Num was also bolstered by a recruiting strategy that initially favoured clerks, team leaders and personnel assistants, and then machine drillers rather than ordinary underground workers. Once the senior black workforce was on board, it proved easy to extend the reach of the union downwards to lower grades, with whom the senior grades regularly interacted. The disproportionate representation of higher grades was anyhow to be expected – because these workers had better access to information, greater powers of organisation, freedom of movement and clear differentials between themselves and lower-paid workers to protect. Num's growth balanced out rapidly when less organised regions and occupations discovered the power of the union. The mining houses faced one additional difficulty that was largely of their own making. The proportion of difficult-to-organise foreign workers drawn from a wider subcontinental labour empire, had been dramatically curtailed by the mining houses just before NUM came into being. In 1974, between 72% at Anglo and 88% at JCI of workers were foreign. By 1980, after deliberate efforts to reduce dependence on foreign workers so as to decrease vulnerability to political risk and to build permanent local skills, Anglo's workforce was 60% domestic and JCI's 55%. This shift from foreign to domestic workers necessitated quite substantial real increases in mine workers' wages, which occurred largely before the arrival of the union. An expectation that real wages would continue to grow helped NUM to capitalize on the mine bosses' difficulties in the tougher economic and mining conditions of the 1980s. Lastly, NUM's growth depended on a careful strategic plan developed by Ramaphosa and Motlatsi. They pragmatically signed access and recognition agreements, avoided the frontal confrontation with mining houses that might have destroyed them, and built the Union's mass base in an exhausting and relentless drive for new members. Ramaphosa appeared quite transformed by the sense of responsibility that he now felt for improving the mine worker's condition. He had known almost nothing about the suffering on the mines when he first took on responsibility for Num, but he quickly came to recognize the wider significance of their exploitation. My biggest regret is that I have never been a miner. The miners represented to me the utter degradation of man, his utter exploitation, and I wanted to experience that so that I can be able to do something about it. As mine workers came to trust Cyril as their advocate, his popularity soared. But it was above all his performances at the negotiating table that were celebrated by the regional organisers and officials who were able to watch them. At the centre of any union is the practice of collective bargaining. The annual wage cycle at the heart of mine industry bargaining was managed by the Chamber of Mines. Mining houses would first reach a consensus among themselves about wages and working conditions and the employer's body would then seek to impose its preferences on its union adversaries in an extended process of deliberation and negotiation. The NUM, like other unions, would make various wage and non-wage demands, usually with a focus on the headline wage figure. Their goal was to secure concessions from the chamber and to push its negotiators as far as their mandate would allow them to go, ideally dividing the mining houses along the way. When Union met employer, the two teams would sit facing one another in the chamber's grand boardroom in downtown Johannesburg. At the heart of the process was a battle between the two chief negotiators, Ramaphosa and Johann Liebenberg, who spoke on behalf of their respective teams. Liebenberg was flanked by representatives of the major mining houses, collectively bound by the prior negotiation of a mandate in laborious pre negotiations On the other side of the table was Ramaphosa, flanked by his key lieutenant, James Motlatsi, and other officials. Behind Num's negotiators sat 30 or 40 representatives of regions and branches, on hand to observe the negotiations for themselves, and to report back to ordinary mine workers. The chambers' negotiators were initially unsettled by the presence of so many Num representatives. The mine workers themselves were enthralled by the opulence of their surroundings. On Num's first visit to the boardroom, the visitors were served tea in china cups and delicate sandwiches, and there were sugar bowls with silver spoons. Arrayed along the length of the boardroom table, were ornate boxes brimming with cigarettes, next to which lay matches in special holders. When the mining house negotiators stepped outside for a brief caucus meeting, the initially reticent mine workers began to enjoy the hospitality. Encouraged by Ramaphosa, help yourselves to what is yours, they stripped the table within minutes. On their next visit, they were greeted with paper cups and empty cigarette boxes. Cyril instinctively understood what industrial relations negotiators usually learn through long experience. Discussions with your own people are always tougher than negotiations with the other side. NUM's branch representatives were carefully briefed in advance of meetings with the chamber and the NUM negotiators would regularly break off to caucus with them. In this way, concessions could be more easily sold to members and regular feedback ensured that expectations were constantly tempered by reality. Negotiations were often complex and laborious. Each side would look for signs of weakness and compromise in the other, NUM delegates even observing the body language of Mining House representatives. James Motlatzi recalls of one Anglo executive with whom NUM often interacted, if he began tapping his foot, we knew that that was it. There was no way he had a mandate to concede on that issue. We could just move on to the next thing. For their part, the chamber's team would rotate the job of observing Num Delegate's body language with the same intention of finding signs of weakness or indecision. Most negotiators were smokers and the pressure was high. As the day wore on, the chamber would fill up with acrid cigarette smoke. In this ritualistic and formal battle, almost no tactic was seen as illegitimate. The chamber's negotiators would sometimes attend in full suits and turn up the air conditioning in the negotiating chamber to discomfort the NUM delegates. The union team used their charm to play on the sympathies of the secretaries, who were white women on the receiving end of their own bosses patronising sexism and sometimes obtained information on the chamber's strategy in this way. On one occasion, the chamber was even obliged to fire its secretarial assistants. Num's leaders worked as a team. Cyril used his gifts as an orator to modulate his voice and to tease and threaten his opposite numbers. Even his body language would change in response to the demands a situation presented, for example... To maintain pressure on an indecisive chamber negotiator, his ability to outtalk his opposite numbers, and always to find the right form of words, was a great source of satisfaction and pride for the observing union representatives. They were equally delighted by his seeming disdain for his adversaries and his complete immunity to browbeating by mining executives. Over time, Cyril became increasingly devious and unreadable, but also increasingly systematic in preparation. We learnt to present our case very, very well, to do research. We paid them back once we had the power. Ramaphosa almost always negotiated with a calm demeanour. Despite the high pressure built up during the negotiations, he rarely showed any stress. Liebenberg, an immensely experienced professional negotiator, was eventually able to recognise when Cyril was getting angry, but not by any outward change in his demeanour. It was like something was filling up to the brim behind his eyes, but it would never break through. On the outside, Cyril always remained calm. There were very occasional exceptions. In 1987, Cyril made the mistake of giving up smoking shortly before the negotiations began. The chamber team that year sprang a surprise by presenting their revised pay increases in percentage terms rather than in the rand money terms hitherto conventional in the industry. The large num caucus behind the union's negotiating team was thrown into confusion by this move. Cyril was visibly rattled. Irritated and agitated, he turned behind him and shouted, Someone give me a cigarette! After a few puffs, his calm demeanour returned. Ramaphosa became a master at manipulating the feelings of his opponents and at changing the atmosphere of a meeting. He could turn the temperature in the room up and down by sheer force of will, and he could shift the mood in an instant. One strategy he employed when dealing with a fresh opponent was to play ignorant, furrowing his brow and pretending not to be able to understand his white interlocutor. Early on in a negotiation with Cyril, unknowing mind negotiators would often feel sorry for him, believing him to be out of his depth. Many naive human relations executives made early concessions to Cyril that they would later regret. As negotiations advanced, Cyril read the body language and expressions of his employer's entire team. He knew instinctively who would make concessions and who was determined to hold the line. And he had an uncanny ability to distinguish the real power brokers from managers who merely made a lot of noise. He would often drive a wedge between his adversaries, heaping praise on some individuals for their wisdom and intelligence. While pouring scorn on others, Cyril and his immediate deputies made a formidable team. Despite his diminutive stature, Marcel Golding would rise confidently to present detailed arguments on technical issues and to set out the Union's analysis of data. He was to prove a highly competent negotiator in his own right when Ramaphosa was unable to attend negotiations. Kuben Pele, the Union's legal adviser, would calmly lob legal hand grenades at the chamber's team. The heart of the num-negotiating team, however, was the very special double act between Ramaphosa and James Mutlazzi. Mutlazzi maintained a stony silence throughout the negotiations, his face, my ugly face, locked in a frown that the chamber's representatives found very difficult to read. Behind Mutlazzi's motionless countenance, he was thinking hard. Listening to the evolving negotiations, his role was to manage the emotions of the Num Caucus and to gauge the likely reactions of the Union's wider constituency to concessions Cyril was making or extracting. He was relentlessly calculating and recalculating how to whip the caucus into agitation and, equally, how to ameliorate its anger. Canadian sociologist Chuck Sable once argued that union bosses need a domestic policy for their own members and a foreign policy for their employer counterparts. In order to extract concessions, a domestic policy must stoke up members' anger so as to scare the bosses into backing down. At the same time, once there is nothing more that the other side can concede, a compromise has to be sold to one's own side as a victory. Ramaphosa controlled the foreign policy engagement with the enemy. Motlatsi, on the other hand, was the master of domestic policy, agitating and soothing Num's representatives by turn. His hardest tasks took place before the negotiations began, in reading the mood of the members and after they had concluded, when he had to go out with the regional organizers to the mines and sweeten the bitter pull of ordinary mine workers' disappointment. In Motlatsi's rather grand way of summarising his own position, Cyril was the chief negotiator, I was the field marshal. Ramaphosa rarely lost his temper, but during a 1985 negotiation at the South African Nuclear Fuels Corporation, NAFCOR, he became livid with anger. The circumstances say a lot about the nature of collective bargaining. NAFCOR was notorious for driving a very hard bargain on wage issues. Its management had succeeded in suppressing wage increases to such an extent that skilled nuclear industry technicians earned less than their counterparts in conventional mines. In a surprise move designed to retain scarce skills at the plant, NAFCOR's human relations team decided to make a substantial improvement in levels of pay. Meanwhile, Cyril had been discussing with local union organisers what kind of pay rise was realistic. Given their low wage levels, they pushed him hard to demand substantial rises. Cyril eventually persuaded them that they must be realistic and ask for 19%. When the two parties sat down to negotiate, Johann Liebenberg allowed Ramaphosa to present his full case for a 19% increase with representatives of the workforce looking on. At the end of the presentation, the employers held a 10-minute caucus in which they appeared to be deliberating the merits of Ramaphosa's case. Then Liebenberg announced management's offer of a 27% increase. Liebenberg rubbed salt in Cyril's wounds by insisting that NAFCOR would not let the workers take anything less. Ramaphosa was furious and his NAFCOR members were outraged. He had to spend more than an hour calming them down. The next day Liebenberg and Ramaphosa met for a cup of coffee. Ramaphosa was still fuming, don't ever do that again. His anger was understandable. When worker representatives are sold a lower offer by their own leader than the management is willing to make, it might seem that the leader was on the management's payroll. When Cyril met up with Motlatzi to conduct their usual post-mortem on the negotiations, the two men seriously considered whether this might be part of an attempt to destroy the Union's presence at NAVCOR. They wondered if Liebenberg was trying to drive a wedge between the Union and its members and to discredit NUM in the eyes of other workforces. The camaraderie that was sometimes established between the opposing negotiators fell away at such times, and the fundamental chasm of distrust between the two sides was revealed. Homoposa later made much of his unwillingness to humiliate his opponents. The real lessons he learned from num negotiations were sitting down with the bosses, learning to cut deals, but also in the end being courteous, not being brash and not being disrespectful and not seeking to humiliate them. That was an important lesson for me, to also respect your adversaries. I did have a great deal of respect for quite a number of people that I negotiated with. The true source of this supposed insight is, however, quickly revealed. This lesson was more than confirmed for me when I read Madiba's book, where he says even when you deal with your adversaries, you've got to deal with them with great courtesy and not try to humiliate them. In a way, that to me has been an important lesson in life. In reality, Motlatsi observes, Ramaphosa could be a vicious negotiator and humiliation was part of his routine negotiating armory, unleashed at the right moment to paralyze his opponents. Ramaphosa does concede that tactful humiliation can be useful. Humiliation is tactful, he explains, when you don't go all out of your way to rub their noses in the mud. You know when it's time to pull back and give them time to withdraw or accept the humiliation with dignity. When provoked, he sometimes took his opposite numbers apart and inflicted prolonged and deliberate humiliation. At the end of one particularly arduous 1985 negotiation concerning the reinstatement of dismissed Wittbank mine workers, an agreement was finally ground out. The union's position had been weak, and Cyril had been compelled to plead for the reinstatement of the workers for more than four hours. When copies of the deal had been signed, the general manager of the mine waved his copy in the air and said to Cyril, now you'd better tell those members of yours to stick to this agreement. Ramaphosa's response was immediate and explosive. Who the fuck do you think you are? You can't give me instructions. None of you can give me instructions. Don't you ever dare tell me what I have to do. An instant later, Cyril turned on an avuncular smile which he directed at one of the mine manager's juniors and the youngster could not help reciprocating. The young man blushed as Cyril commented that at least there was one capable negotiator in their team. The general manager went red in the face and though his lips were moving slowly, he was incapable of uttering a word. He got up and left the building. James Motlazzi later learned from the manager's driver That he sat in stony silence for the whole drive back to Vitbank and then exploded, He just shitted all over me. There were strict limits to what negotiations could achieve for either side. Wage increases were constrained by a mind's need to be profitable. Downward pressure on wages and conditions is likewise contained by a mind's need to retain scarce skills. While the union fostered expectations on the part of the workers, that could never be satisfied, the mining houses could do little to change the wider social and political problems of late apartheid. Cyril saw organising mine workers not, as he'd once been told, as the art of the possible, but rather as the art of the impossible, trying to make a fundamental change in a system by using structures and instruments that were designed to perpetuate that system. For Omoposa, This was like trying to make a revolution with moderate tools that were invented to prevent a revolution. His own shop stewards were constantly pushing for new kinds of intervention and action and insisting that a new issue, such as resistance to the system, be added to the union's objectives. In fact, the mines were part of a wider pattern of exploitation of black by white that could not be ameliorated by the industry alone. Vic Allen observed, for example, that the town of Velcom was a modern white conservative town with a population of 65,000, of whom 80% were directly or indirectly dependent on mining. Distributed across this town, but not part of it, were mine compounds accommodating 150,000 black mine workers. The nearby township of Tabong, built by Anglo-American had a population of 450,000 and no water or electricity. Velcom was known as the white-by-night town because black people were banned from its streets after dark by law and later by convention. To meet mine workers' grievances like these required a wider political and social change than negotiation could hope to bring about. Even in the narrow realm of wage negotiations, there were strict limits on what the union could achieve. While they were the beneficiaries of state privileges, such as the right to import workers from outside South Africa, the mines were private enterprises in a market economy. Wages were ultimately driven by factors other than the relative bargaining power of workers and bosses. Prior to the formation of the union, workers had in fact enjoyed a decade of wage rises on the mines, primarily as a result of the mining houses' decision to reduce dependency on the subcontinental migrant labour system and their growing dependence on more skilled employees. If NUM had been founded in the mid 1970s, it would have been celebrated for bringing unprecedented gains in real wages. Instead, NUM's formation coincided with the emergence of a pool of excess labour for the first time, and the union battled to secure wage gains. Romopause are never tired of improving the capacity of the union to negotiate, eventually using outside consultants funded by international donors to produce new tools to strengthen the negotiating case of the union. This might involve analysis of the differentials between mine workers and comparable workers in other industries, international comparative studies of mine workers' wages, and adjustments of demands for anticipated changes in rates of inflation. Yet as one of the union's later innovators points out. While the union developed many fact-based resources, the facts were often one of the least important things in negotiations. On one occasion, NUM was drawn into torrid negotiations at the Dernacol coking coal mine in Newcastle in Natal. Dernacol had been taken over by the national steel giant Iskor which wanted vertical security of coking coal supply to its local steelworks. The local management, which had a reputation for poor labour practices, found itself drawn into a complex dispute with the workforce that it was now unable to end. Mine workers were staging an underground sit-in, and production at the mine was at a standstill. Ramaphosa and NUM Industrial Relations head Martin Nickel went down to Newcastle to engage in negotiation with the local managers and union organisers. The management representatives were under severe pressure. The new bosses in ESCOR had evidently told them to settle the dispute as a matter of urgency. Cyril, meanwhile, was at the peak of his form, provoking, teasing and confusing the management by turns. He exploited the situation to the full toying with an increasingly desperate management whom he pressured into making one concession after another. Eventually they gave away everything Ramaphosa could have wished for, and more. On the face of it, a victory for the workforce. It proved to be a defeat. A negotiator as tough and skilled as Ramaphosa needs an opposite number who knows what he's doing. The Dernical bosses unwittingly made concessions they could not afford. Promising wage increases and new working practices, it was simply beyond the means of the mine. Dernacol had a weak seam of coal that was difficult and costly to extract. Within two or three years of the agreement being reached, these economic realities made themselves felt. It had become cheaper for Escor to import coking coal from abroad than dig it out of the ground at Dernacol. A wave of retrenchments began in which thousands of workers were ultimately to lose their jobs. For a brilliant negotiator like Romoposa, his own powers of persuasion carried with them a hidden danger. He always remembered afterwards that one should never force the other side to make a concession they simply cannot live with.